It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, It's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Cross wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across sheffield from the 31st of may to the 2nd of june so other podcasters that you'll be able to see include katie price Catherine ryan romash ranganathan and the original adam buxton but there's also a whole host of free fringe events family shows surprise acts and after parties that jane and i haven't yet been invited to i'm sure it's only a matter of time head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shawley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. Don't forget, you can listen live on Times Radio, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. More people are listening. We've had some figures out this week. 12% more people tuning in to Times Radio every week, which is nice. Uh, so, uh, and if you are already one of them, tell your friends as well. If you're visiting friends, reaching their radios to Times Radio and break their knob off. Right, coming up on today's episode then, the big political question of the week. Is it 1992, when everyone thinks that Labour are going to win, and then the Tories did? Or is it 1997, when Labour win by a landslide? Well, who better to ask, frankly, than the man who was there in 1992? Neil Kinnock is coming up on the podcast. And actually, this is an extended version of the interview, because we couldn't fit it all in uh, on the radio. Really, really interesting talking about politics in the 70s and in the 90s and now. Uh, But he also opens up about his trans grandson and his hope that everyone can just be a bit politer during the trans debate. And really movingly talking about his wife, uh, Glenys, as well, and looking after her uh, while she lives with Alzheimer's. So really fascinating interview with Neil Kinnock coming up. But first, let's pick through the news with today's columnists. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yeah, and today's columnist panel joining me in the studio, Times columnist Ian Martin's here. Morning, Ian. Morning. Nice to see you. And beaming in, former head of Channel 4 News, Dorothy Bird. Morning, Dorothy. Good morning. Where are you joining us from this morning, Dorothy? I'm joining from Murray Edwards College at Cambridge University. Oh, of course, of course. Uh, in fact, I think the last time you were on the show was when we did the show in Cambridge last year. Uh, so it's nice to have you back. Um let's talk about... Well, there's sort of lots of threads of things uh, flying around. I suppose that the exam question is, what should a former Prime Minister do? We've got Boris Johnson's being interviewed by Nadine Doris. We've got Liz... Talk of a Liz Trust comeback. Theresa May popping up in the House of Commons again. Is, Dave, is David Cameron the, the, the power good of virtue now, Ian? Should everybody be following his, his approach of not saying anything? I wouldn't describe him as a paragon of virtue, no. But, uh, well, I think that it is a fascinating subject. It's partly a product of the reality that people live longer. And prime ministers, I think, they've tended to be a bit younger. They get there younger and then they live longer afterwards, yeah. So then, you know, the question is, what do they do with their time? I think that they certainly shouldn't resign from the House of Commons. 
I think I think that's a big lesson that you want politicians, having been prime minister mm. or foreign secretary or chancellor, to stay in the Commons so you get the kind of benefit of their wisdom later on. And in that sense, I think actually Theresa May, uh, who I was a critic of at the time, and, and as 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 were you, Matt, and as were a lot of people actually. <laughs> but uh, yeah, if you don't, don't start listing everybody, yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah, we've only got half an hour. <laughs> but I think. Uh, the way that she's conducted herself it is exemplary. I mean, she makes the interventions uh, are considered, and when she wants to say something, she says it in the says it in the Commons, and has conducted herself rather brilliantly. I think so. I, I think it's a mistake that Cameron yeah. left. I think he should I have agree. stayed as an MP. He would probably, in the carnage of Brexit, come back as Foreign Secretary. Might even come back as Prime Minister at some point. Wow. Imagine well, that. maybe, maybe not. It, okay, if William Hague had stayed in, yeah, uh, in stayed in politics, when no one could decide what on earth to do, how to sort this out, here was someone with Eurosceptic credentials. It's conceivable in one of those leadership he races he would have been he a could unity have candidate. Street, when everyone was looking for the unity, when everyone thought about David Liddington, yeah, you know, in the the, de the depths of Theresa May time, William Hague could have been prime minister. I th I'm a bit of a fan of David Liddington, but yeah. Uh, but I, yeah, I can see yeah, that sort I can... of that sort of vibe. What do you think, Dorothy? What, are you excited by the prospect of a Liz Truss comeback? Well, Ian just referred to people giving you the benefit of their wisdom. I'm afraid I don't think Liz Truss and <laughs> Boris Johnson have much wisdom, and it would be good if they went off and did something else. Maybe they could do good works or study how to become sensible people. But I do agree about Theresa May. And the thing I also don't like is former prime ministers going off and making loads of money by getting involved in businesses. I don't find that a pleasant prospect at all. What about making speeches? Because there's a sort of... there's a where David Cameron came unstuck was he got involved in that group with that Greens Hill chap and you know lobbying and all of that. But if, if someone wants to pay for reasons I don't fully understand, Theresa May two hundred thousand pounds to make a speech, that's sort of all right, or is it? Well, I'm just amazed that people pay that sum of money for <laughs> Theresa May to make a speech because let's be frank, she's not a great speech maker. And I would like to go along to one of those speeches and see if people actually stay awake. But good luck to her. Um, it would be good if they could give some of their money to charity, perhaps, to make up for their errors. A bit like Matt Hancock giving that tiny percentage of money to charity for being on I'm a Celebrity. I think I think sometimes they, they do uh, give money to charity. Certainly Cameron does. I think I mean, this has been going on for about 30 years. It's, it started in the, the Thatcher major era that you retire. And because, I mean, the, the brutal truth is that their contemporaries have made so much money. Right? Yeah. So you make, they make a choice. Um, they're not doing as a favor. They get a lot of power. But they make a choice to go into politics in their 20s or 30s. The con their contemporaries from university who went into the city or law or sometimes media... Uh, but more generally law and business, have made an absolute fortune, usually, in those circumstances. Um, I think it's kind of understandable that they're, 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 they then see themselves as making up for yeah. the, the, the hit they took to their earnings in the 20s, and 30s also, it's and It's just a lifestyle thing. When you've been at the top of politics, flying around yeah. the world and meeting powerful people and rubbing shoulders with 
Bill Gates one minute and pop stars and all that sort of thing. You, you don't want to go back to your your pre your pre politics yeah. life necessarily. I just think we've got a big problem in this country in that as voters, we want contradictory <laughs> things, right? Yeah. We want. We want the very best people to go into politics. Why don't the very best people go into politics? But we want them to be as poor as possible. Yeah, well, there's an terribly. obvious, yeah. you know, disincentive there to, um, you know, if you can't then in your 50s or 60s. I mean, I, I would make second jobs as sort of MPs compulsory, actually, I think. You know, I, th I think <laughs> the 19th century idea of yeah. politics being a kind of calling and you were serving the community, but you were also having to do something in the morning, whether it was be a a lawyer or a solicitor or a journalist or all sorts of other things. And then in the 20th century, people were also still then involved in trade unions. Now, it's, it's, I, think, I just think we're not honest with ourselves as, as voters about what we, what we want. We want brilliant poor people as, as, um, as, as politicians. That's not going to work out very well. There's also, Dorothy, on the former Prime Minister's thing, and I know because I've, I've spoken to David Cameron a, a few times about this, <laughs> but sometimes I've been trying to get a news story out of him, a sort of club, maybe sort of this applies to party leaders generally, even the ones who are only in opposition, of sort of the, the, the unwritten rule that you don't make trouble for your successors. There aren't many, you know how hard it is if your predecessors have, you know, been on at you. And so you're sort of, the, the, the polite thing, plenty of other people are going to give Rishi Sunak advice. Actually, Boris Johnson and Liz Truss don't need to go around needling or, you know, and all, it's sort of a bit attention seeker. That idea of just, I know what it's like, I'm not going to make, add to your, your long list of troubles. I agree with you. I think it, I feel really sorry for Rishi Sunak having Boris Johnson on his back all the time. And I think Gordon Brown going off and doing his own thing and serving in public service in uh, different ways and advising the Labour Party is a much more attractive way forward. I do think that we have to pay MPs more. It's true that they don't earn anything like the normal salary of a highly educated middle-class person would expect to get. And I think that's one reason that we don't get good people as MPs now. But I don't feel very sorry for former prime ministers. <laughs> they should remember why they're former, because they mess things up in most cases. I, do I feel sorry for the country. I do think we need other uh, routes into politics, and there's that that longevity question and the need for people to earn money. I think I think we need. I've always thought the traditional route was the sensible one that people go in and try and get in in their twenties. So most of the greats have gone in in their twenties, and then they've stayed as MPs for a long time. You get the benefit of while doing wisdom. other things. But I don't think if we want social mobility, and we want proper opportunity and a genuine mix in politics. I think we've probably going to have to accept a slightly different model where people can make their make their way in a career and then go in later yeah. as an active public service uh, possibly i mean I, yeah i don't I, I do feel slightly sorry for um rishi sunak in in that you know he has you know the boris carnival is is back in is back in town but i don't think any of it is really i don't th think that boris is seriously going to come back i see the liz trust thing presented as a comeback uh, written about as a comeback it's not that is it it is somebody's fired up an old whatsapp group precisely i mean <laughs> all of us are on all manner of interesting whatsapp 
uh, groups politically. I'm sure you are. You're, you must be on a WhatsApp group with Andrew Bridgen or something. <laughs> I, I can imagine... I just send him uh, potato emojis. <laughs> but, it, <laughs> but it doesn't actually really... Joining a WhatsApp group, a, prime, a former prime minister making a speech on tax policy, it's not a comeback. It was presented yeah, yeah. on the front page of various newspapers as a comeback. I mean, how is that going to happen? There is There are no circumstances in which the Conservative Party is going to make Liz Truss its leader again. That's not <laughs> going to happen, is it? Well, you would hope not. You'd hope not. Uh, let's move on and talk about something much less contentious, Brexit. Um, we're talking a minute, Ian, about your column, talking yeah. about how de still defending Brexit is a slightly thankless task. Uh, this, though, was uh, Hugh Pill. He's the chief economist at the Bank of England, was on Times Only Breakfast this morning, talking about the impact of Brexit. It remains too early to say. The bank's analysis on you know, trade developments, their implications for the productivity, that's the channel on which we have focused. We've also looked to some extent on uh, uh, the impact on migration and what the implications that has the labour force. I mean, those types of channels, as modelled by the bank uh, in the work we published on that, do suggest that that is weighed on the supply potential of the economy. I think, as yet, we have not seen uh, offsetting effects, at least uh, in net terms, in the other direction. It feels like the, the whole time I've been at the Times, Ian, you and I mm. have been having conversations where I ask how Brexit's going. And, yeah. and you say... It's suboptimal, <laughs> the, the outcome so far. <laughs> Yeah. So we should expect you, you, you backed Brexit, and in your most recent column, you've said that uh, backing Brexit in public now is a doomed mission to end all doomed missions. Yeah, it was, yes. I mean, it, it just reminded me a little bit of, you know, that, that sketch from Beyond the Fringe where Peter Cook's character is sending off a, an airman, Perkins, on a sort of doomed, uh, doomed mission because we need a futile gesture at this point. <laughs> you know, is it au revoir? No, it's goodbye, Perkins. Um so, yeah, I'm very much, you know, aware of that. If you mention it, parties, dinner parties, whatever, in conversation that you voted for Brexit, there's absolutely no doubt that those of us who did are on the on the back foot. I mean, I've written for the times that I think that at various points, it's not the elements of it which are not working, um, trading cooperation with the EU. I think we have to move to a much more practical, pragmatic um approach to these things and fix the Northern Ireland Protocol thing is going to involve compromise and then can begin the work on trying to improve the deal, which was a pretty bare-bones deal done for reasons we all uh, understand because Boris Johnson was desperate to get Britain out and to, to win an election. But I think the whole of the next sort of 10, 20 years, the, the, whoever is in power will be dominated by a um, an attempt to try and improve improve the, that relationship but I, I have become i have to say while i'm a moderate brexiteer who's prepared to admit what's not working some of the sort of doom and gloom um for example around the imf stuff which was connected to the uh, was presented as being connected to the third anniversary yeah. of brexit i just find almost uh, comical yeah. in its in, in its intensity i mean if you go back this was the survey which predicted that, that britain was not going to grow at all this year go back to the imf survey a year ago, just ahead of the Ukraine war, there's no relation to, to at all to what happened. So I mean, forecast, we're, we're going to have to wait and see. Yeah, if you don't like this forecast, don't worry, because there's going to be another one along in a minute. Yeah, or if you or take Britain's entry into the European Community, if you were to make a call on that in 1976 or 1978, yeah. three years after the um, the, the referendum yeah. to stay in, how good a call would that? Look, yeah, these yeah. things move in sort of ten-year cycles. Are you looking I forward think. to ten or twenty years of still talking about Brexit, Dorothy? 
Well, of course, I'm one of the people run the other way that people don't want to hear from who thinks we should look at a way of getting back in again. I, I think the problem... You, I bet you two Brexit... get invited to a lot of dinner parties. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like <laughs> people... <laughs> I think people find me more boring than they would find Ian on that one. Not at all. Um, but I, I think the problem is the great things we were promised... If we had been told it will be difficult, there are good reasons for doing it. But that isn't what we were told. We were told we'd have a great trade deal with the US and everything would be wonderful and the NHS would be fantastic and none of those things came to pass. And and I do happen to think it was a catastrophe and that if... Labour should be daring and say, let's think of trying to get back in again. I think there the, pro- you go. the, the yeah. problem with the... Yeah, I see all that, but the, the problem surely with the rejoin argument rather than try and improve uh, relations is that the moment you, you suggest that or a political leader suggests that, you just everything that flows from that is just logically doesn't make any sense. It's practically politically not going to work that a leader of the opposition or a prime minister says, I'm now getting in a, a on the Eurostar to go to Brussels yeah, yeah. to ask to be let back back in. The moment that happens, the question is then is, well, on what terms? Is it the old deal? It's probably not going to be. What do we have to sign up to? How many years is it going to take? The EU would re- would demand a guarantee that Britain wouldn't dare cause any trouble or vote to leave at any point in the next 20 years. The moment you start to work it through, it's just, it, yeah, I, yeah. I don't think it is practically possible. But what is possible is a much better relationship with, with the EU, which you get to beyond the Northern Ireland Protocol, yeah. if that is not messed up by the DUP <laughs> or by the ERG or some any other, other acronyms. Yeah. <laughs> MFI. Yeah, they, might, they may have a view they, as well. Sure yeah. Got a view, yeah. They might be better with cabinets. Uh, let's turn our attention now to blue plaques. Uh, there's one that's been put up, uh, a, a fake blue plaque, we should stress, in Blackpool by pranksters. They've put one on a lamppost where Rishi Sunak was fined for not wearing a seatbelt. Uh, you remember he he posted a video on uh, on online of him uh, chatting away without a seatbelt on the back of his car. The one in Blackpool reads, Rishi Sunak... 19th of the 1st, 2023, received a fixed penalty notice for being filmed passing this spot in a car whilst not wearing a seatbelt. Obviously, that's not a real one, but it got us in wondering, how do you get a blue plaque? Well, it turns out the man who knows is Radio 1 legend and chairman of the Blue Plaque Trust, Mike Reed. Morning, Mike. Morning, Mike. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. So how do you get a real blue plaque rather than just putting up a fake one? Uh, well, I think you have contributed something to your country over the years. Um, whatever it is, something special and something unique in your particular genre, whether it be medicine uh, or sport or, or whatever it is, or, or even politics. Uh, but yeah, they do put up jokey ones now and again. There was one I know in the Northeast uh, that said Jimi Hendrix stopped here for fish and chips. I'm not sure how long it stayed up. And there was one where somebody famous was eating soup in a, in a university they put up. But I mean, they're quite fun. We've, we've always been, been good at uh, having our sense of humour. Uh, they're quite fun. I was asked once when doing a talk at a literary festival uh, and somebody who turned out to be a journalist, surprise, surprise, uh, stood up and said, there should be blue plaques for the first 30 female MPs. And I said, well, what about the first 30 male MPs? Well, at least the first 10 female MPs. I said, well, what about the first 10 male MPs? And she said, well, that's the f- first female MP. I said, do you know who that was? Oh, 
I said, well, it was a Sinn Féin lady called Constance who didn't take a seat, but Nancy Astor did. Well, there should be one to her. There is. So <laughs> you're, constantly, you're constantly getting asked these very strange questions. Yeah. And what's the what's the criteria you're looking for? Because sometimes walking around London, you see them, you know, and it's sort of quite often it's like a it's it's a classical music person I've not heard of, sort of lived here for a year or something. And other times it's like you said, it's a moment. I don't know, it's a band played in a building. And other times it might be someone who lived in a building their entire life. So what's the what's the bar you need to clear that makes that spot significant enough to qualify? I'm not sure it's that specific. Uh, you, you tend to look at each case as it is. I headed up the uh, BBC uh, Plaque Simba. We did 50 in one day in 2016. Uh, and again, we formed 40 committees around the country. I wrote 35,000 words so they could talk to the listeners, get the listeners voting. So they were people's votes. Uh, English Heritage a while ago decided they weren't going to do it. And I think then they came back. But they're very uh, London orientated. Uh, but I've even taken it into the Commonwealth. We did one in Barbados for... Uh, the three famous cricketing W's, Warrell, Weeks and Walcott, uh, who were supported there by Wes Hall, Charlie Griffith, Gary Sobers, and all the ministers came out. Uh, so that was the very first blue plaque in, in the Commonwealth. So I think it's nice to, uh, to take it into the Commonwealth as well. But yeah, the criteria, it can vary. Um, and you can get within a family somebody that wants to put up a blue plaque and then somebody who owns the house doesn't want it. <laughs> uh, so, and then you have grade two listings, so you have to jump a lot of hoops there. What can you put up? Um, what's the insurance on it? Do we have to clean it? Are we responsible for it? All these sort of questions. Uh, but yeah, I think you look at each case separately and see indeed whether there are already plenty of plaques. Like Dickens has about 50 plaques. Uh, okay. um, He's probably uh, got Tolkien, Tolkin has quite a few as well. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think he had one where he stayed for a night. I think mm, <laughs> that's a bit tenuous. I think you have to look at something <laughs> so uh, a little travel more long-lasting than that, yeah. Dorothy, yeah. Dorothy, who would you like? Well, I'm going to say, who do you want to see a blue plaque to? And then Michael tell us that there already is one. But what do you think should be, who do you think should be marked with a blue plaque? Well, I would like to see, this is the place where Liz Truss and Quasi Quartan came up with the plan to destroy the British economy. <laughs> you could have a very popular series of Boris Johnson's personal life around London. I've been on a great one of favourite pubs of Karl Marx. And I, I think um, you could get a lot of tourists coming to a what Boris Johnson got up to in Boris Johnson spent the night here. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, yeah, that would be really good. Dorothy Byrne and Ian Martinet and Mike Reed. You don't get that anywhere else, do you? Uh, don't forget you can read Ian apologising for Brexit every week in The Times. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is Neil Kinnock. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. This is Matt Chorley from Times Radio. We take a look at politics without the boring bits and the thing that everyone is talking about in politics right now. Looking at the state of the polls, looking ahead to the next election. Is it 1992 or 1997? Well, who better to ask? The man who was there in 1992 and, of course, in 1997 as well. Uh, Neil Kinnock, Lord Kinnock, thanks for joining us. Nice uh, we'll come to 92 uh, in a moment. First of all, let's go back to another election with an unexpected result. 1970, when you first became an MP. The Conservatives won, but all the polls have suggested Labour were going to win. Is your whole life, your whole political life, being unexpected election results? <laughs> um, in a sense, yes, uh, because, of course, the polls uh, are not entirely composed of people telling the truth <laughs> in the same way as they do when they put a cross on a piece of paper and stick it into the ballot box. Uh, and often in polls, people say what they think they should be saying, uh, what their, if you like, inner morality tells them they should be saying. And then when it comes to the ballot box, uh, they think, yes, but what, what, what does it mean for me? And if somebody's waving tax cuts under their noses or something equally implausible but desirable, they tend to put their cross down on that basis. So uh, the only conclusion to be drawn, really, is there are no repeat elections. So you say, is it 92 or 97? The answer is, it's neither. <laughs> it's not 1970 either, yeah. because while history does repeat itself, it never does it completely. Every single election is unique. And you arrived in the House of Commons then, you know, big names uh, on the Tory benches and on the Labour benches, Roy Jenkins, Roy Hatsley, Margaret Thatcher, Alec Douglas Hume. What was it like in, in Parliament then, and how does it compare to what it's like now? Well, from a newly arrived 28-year-old yeah. with a gigantic majority in a seat that I never expected to be selected for, um, it was a, a buzzing, boiling confusion as one would expect. And then, uh, to a degree similar to now, there is no form of training yeah. or rehearsal or on-the-job instruction. You just get stuck into it. 
I was lucky there were some older members of Parliament who were very kind in their sensible advice to me about where things were and how to get uh, paid envelopes and so on. Uh, but that was about it, actually. And what's changed is, the biggest change, I think, is the fact that after years of battling for it, eventually MPs started to get decent uh, research and constituency support. And that really does mean, I think, that MPs do a better job in their constituencies now than they could do then. Uh, and there's much less focus on the chamber as the means of uh, presenting uh, views, making the argument, winning the argument, losing the vote. Uh, there's less emphasis on that now, simply because of the way in which the whole political environment around communication and representation has changed. It's interesting what you say about the, the Commons Chamber. You've, you've variously been described as the finest Labour orator since Bevan and the wealth windbag. There's quite a broad spectrum there. Did you, did you learn that in the House of Commons Chamber? Was there pressure to raise your game and your oratory and your power of argument? Well, there always is. And anybody who isn't nervous before getting up and asking a question, mm. let alone making a speech in the Commons, really isn't a human being. There are some people who are so self-assured, so self-confident, uh, sometimes as a consequence of their education or upbringing, other times because that's just the kind of yeah. temperament they've got, which is usually a pain in the ass. <laughs> but um, most people have to learn. My best instruction came from the job I had before I went to the House of Commons, which was an adult tutor, mainly dealing with shop stewards and middle management in a variety of industries and teaching them industrial economics and communication and industrial relations. Uh, they were the kind of audiences which wouldn't take a fool <laughs> for one minute. They just let you know. Yeah. Especially since they were mainly a generation before me, they'd fought in the war, they'd been in the merchant service, uh, they'd seen the world, they'd worked underground for 20 years, so they weren't going to take any prisoners. And you had to be on your mettle every time you spoke to them. I loved them. I mean, I learned a hell of a lot more <laughs> from them than they ever learned from me. But these were great people, very few women. I did have one class which was entirely women. Uh, in an engineering company in Pontypridd, but um, nearly always men. And that meant that you had to be on your mettle, yeah. you had to know the answers, you had to avoid bullshit because they had all installed <laughs> uh, identifying means of deciding whether you were the general art, uh, genuine article, yeah. giving them the reality or whether you were making it up. And so he never made it up. <laughs> I did have one colleague who used to try to do it, and he just got cut to pieces. Yeah. It's interesting, that, that as a sort of test bed 
winning over a sort of small audience is yep. obviously quite uh, sometimes easier within the, you know harder than before you get in front of a bigger audience and then you, you well the house of commons is the interesting thing and it's still the same most of the time you are speaking to and a part of a relatively small yeah. audience that's one of the reasons why the chamber can't sit more than about 340 MPs when they're 650. That's deliberate because much of the most effective work of representation and argument in the House of Commons is in committee or in uh, collections of MPs who have a particular focus on a particular issue. And that means we've still in many ways got representation by conversation mm. not by uh, fluorescent oratory <laughs> and did you what, what about i suppose the other end of the spectrum is pmqs did you enjoy all of that being at the dispatch box facing thatcher and um, major across the dispatch box sometimes they did when you win you do. <laughs> when you lose you don't and when it's a score draw uh, especially against a prime minister with a big wadge of um briefing notes yeah. Uh, an intense focus. If you get a score draw in those circumstances, uh, you come away and uh, enjoy a cup of coffee even more. But um, uh, it varies. Some who, you win, who some did you, you Who did you prefer going up against? Um, in some ways, Margaret Thatcher, uh, because she took it so seriously, dedicated hours and hours of preparation. Um, and uh, had a, a, an ironclad resilience, which meant that even when you scored and her side knew you'd scored, um, she never took any notice. She just stuck to the script. <laughs> John Major was much easier because he's a human being and uh, uh, had some vulnerabilities. And of course, you try and punch the bruise. Yeah. And he, he probably had more bruises to punch by the time you uh, oh, he, he got there. He, he, the, the poor sod did have a lot of bruises <laughs> to punch. Most of them, of course, inflicted from behind. Yeah. Because that's where the enemy really is. The other side are opponents. Yeah. Behind you is the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you, I mean, you had a bit of that as well. You, you were Labour leader dealing with uh, yeah, militants, you know, trying to shift the Labour Party away from what had happened under, under Michael Foote. Um, Lots of people draw comparisons between that and what Keir Starmer's had to do post Jeremy Corbyn. Do you think he's he's completed that job the way in in the similar way that you you had to? He's done a hell of a job, I must say, uh, in extraordinarily a very very short time. Mm. There are lots of difference in the circumstances, but nevertheless, what he took on when he got elected, uh, which is now less than three years ago, was a set of circumstances in which the Labour Party was not even flat on the ground. It was virtually underground. And secondly, he had this terrible stain of anti-Semitism to deal with. And thirdly, it was just about the beginning of the coronavirus yeah. crisis. And the consequences for the first two years that he was leader of the opposition he couldn't move around the country, he couldn't meet people. And of course, for any leader of the opposition, regardless of party, having that mobility and the ability to communicate directly is absolutely vital. So what he's done in less than three years 
is quite remarkable and huge credit to him and to the fact that in contrast to the prime ministers that we've had in recent years certainly is mature is rational sensible very straightforward very honest guy uh, and the contrast is increasingly being really appreciated quite properly you mentioned that on the anti-semitism issue it's, it's come up again this week do you think it's a fair criticism of Keir Starmer that he didn't speak out about it when Jeremy Corbyn was Labour leader in fact sat in his shadow cabinet and tried to make him prime minister twice while other MPs left the party or felt they were forced out well he's elected as a Labour MP yeah he was asked to go on the front bench he was one of those who agreed to do it in order to do specific job yeah. of being the shadow Brexit secretary and as a matter of duty not because of any particular affection or indeed support for Jeremy Corbyn as a matter of duty he did it and when duty calls you've really got to make up your mind whether you're going to do that job and withstand the criticism that come from the implied support yeah. for the leader of the party or whether you're going to back off and Keir to his credit took it on but you have done the same um, I probably for a job which was at the time of crucial importance not self-importance but a task to be undertaken I might have done that yes uh, simply because um, you've got to do your duty yeah and your duty ultimately is to the country and making the argument that is important to the well-being of the country and that sounds a bit pompous but it's not it's yeah. really what you don't do one of the things I want to ask you about was that he's he's also faced criticism because he's moved from when he was running to be leader he promised to defend free movement scrap tuition fees nationalize energy companies you know, but he was a staunch Remainer campaign for a second referendum. Having got the leadership, he's moved away from a lot of those things. Is that uh, a natural thing? All leaders, you do one thing to win over the party, no, you do something that's else. That's not how it works, really. Um, as Keir said himself just a few weeks ago, he didn't use this phrase, but this is what it means. That was then, this is now. And so much has happened. Yeah. A lot of it bad in the last two and a half, three years to our country, to our economy, uh, to the worsening of uh, climate conditions, a different relationship that needs to be built, a different relationship with the European Union. Because our departure now is six years and seven months ago, we're not going to fight those old battles. Yeah. We've got to focus on today and build for tomorrow. That's the task. And I think uh, Keir is sensible to be recognising that very openly, very plainly. Um, uh, no twisting, turning, sidestepping, evasions. He just said it like it is. Does he pick up the phone to you, ask advice? We, uh, we, we are in contact. I, I had a lovely long meeting with him a uh, week last Saturday. Um, good you. Uh, and... I tend to send him, if I come across a really funny tweet <laughs> or a bit of film, I tend to send that to him. And he's, he's the kind of guy who just about always acknowledges. Yeah. I mean, 
is, I think when you watch sport, and you can tell a really great footballer, or rugby player, or cricketer, they always seem to have the time. Yeah. Keir Starmer always seems to have the time. He replies to your funny tweets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's, I, okay, it's out of courtesy yeah. and friendship, but it, he probably does that with just about everybody. And what, what's the advice that you're giving him? What are you, what are you telling him? Oh, I don't give advice. Oh. Good God. I, um, and he'd be wrong to take it anyway, because I'm not in his position. Yeah. I can identify with yeah. it. I can see similarities. I can uh, see what I, as an individual, as a democratic socialist, a fellow Labour Party member, uh, what I would like to be possible. But I wouldn't advise him <laughs> on it. Um, if he said to me, give me some advice, yeah. I'd give it a try. But he'd be wrong to ask. Yeah. When, um, just skipping back a couple of Labour leaders, when Ed Miliband was elected, you, you famously said, we've got our party back. No, I didn't. You didn't? Uh, no. <laughs> I'll tell you how that happened. I uh, went uh, immediately after Ed was elected, yeah. and I voted for him. Um, and I went to a Tribune rally in, I think it was Manchester. And I related how, to the audience, how an old trade union comrade of mine, okay. who I bumped into on the way out of the hall, said, Neil, we got our party back. And I said to him, no, we never lost it. The Labour Party has leaders, not proprietors. Yeah. Don't ever forget that. So I told this story. A journalist there, <laughs> I think I know who it was, decided it made a much better story to put the word <laughs> in, words in my mouth. So I... Uh, I, I I mean, I used those words, but I didn't say it like that. Do you think, maybe this sort of follows on from this, when uh, politicians are under so much scrutiny these days, you know, 24-hour news and social media and anyone can get yeah. the come out and feel yeah. with that sort of thing. Yeah. The jobs change so much. And, you know, these days, you know, it's not just what would you do on the economy. You know, these days, Keir Starmer gets asked about taking the knee, toppling statues, yeah. what's a woman. Yeah. Would you have coped with all of those issues as well? With difficulty. Uh, I think he deals with it very, very well. But it's interesting and right that you should focus on that dramatic change in what I earlier yeah. referred to as the political in environment. Yeah. Because rolling 24-7 news and social media together constitute in many ways a different minute-by-minute, minute, let alone hour-by-hour, yeah. hour battleground. And political leaders now, political representatives, have to really develop the ability to respond in those circumstances. Sometimes they do it brilliantly, other times it can skid off the surface, and it's damn difficult in any way. And I think what you always hope is that whoever the audience is understands that you've been asking, you've been asked for, uh, indeed pressed for, a useful, significant response at seconds notice. Yeah. <laughs> and the greatest geniuses in the world are going to struggle with that. What do you make of the, of the, <coughs> of the trans debate? Because it's so inflammatory on both sides. People, you know, uh, and yet other people draw comparisons between the debate that happened in the 80s and 90s about gay people. Yeah, there's a difference. Yeah. Um, except that it is still... Uh, an issue of civil rights. Mm. 
And that's how I tried to translate it for people back in the 70s, even in the 60s, when I was amongst the first sort of leading lights in politics to say that homosexual people had rights as members of our society, and that's where they should be considered yeah. from and supported from. Uh, the trans issue is more complex, and I've stayed a million miles away from it as much as I could, because it's none of my damn business really, except that I've got a beloved granddaughter who is now a beloved grandson and has transitioned. And he's a great kid, always has been. Uh, I love him as much as I do my other grandchildren. But I can see how lots of people, not biased, prejudiced, dogmatic people, just normal people like myself. I mean, normal in the sense that we're every day. Yeah. I'm not referring to my sexual orientation. Yeah, yeah. Um, are confronted with dilemmas and challenges that go right into the gut. And I can see how people have got difficulty with this. I'm just lucky that um, I've got a family with marvelous grandchildren and children that means that we have got a real community, yeah. a real network of love between us, and that makes everything for us yeah. easier, but I can see why it doesn't make it easier for a lot of other people. Does it worry you when you say you try to keep out of it? I think lots of people end up doing the same thing. Yeah, we have the same discussions about how much to do it on the radio yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, what ends up leaving is to the people with very extreme, the only people who then get involved are very extreme. And if you're arguing about a statue, it doesn't matter because the statue doesn't care because the statue, you know. Yeah. But your grandson is being, you know, a football being kicked around by the most angry, He's aggressive a good people. He's footballer as well. As it happens. <laughs> yeah. Does that worry you? That actually, is it being wrong for you know politicians at all parties? I think to sort of step back from it. Think, oh, I'm not going to go there. Well, if they haven't got the answers, yeah. I don't mean the answers that would convince people at the poles of the argument. I mean, answers in terms of uh, how society should conduct itself and uh, how do we make sure that our conception of civil rights is deep-rooted and everyday and yeah. usual. Um, then I think they've got the right to say, look, I don't know. Yeah. Um, if this is my constituent and their rights are being infringed, I will stand up for them. But otherwise, I'm not going to offer you a philosophical answer. And I think we've got a right to do that yeah. because, you know, when political representatives in a democracy, politicians, um, appear to have expertise on everything, they're rightly criticized. Yeah. But when they admit to the fact that they haven't got an answer, they're battered as well. Yeah. So the only thing you can do is be honest about it and say, if you don't know, then say, I don't know. Yeah. Neil Kinnock, let's turn our attention to uh, 1992, this big debate. Is it 1992? And let me take you back to 1992. Did you well, think... If you must. <laughs> did you think, second time, second time round, you were going into a general election as yeah. Labour leader, albeit against a different, different Conservative Prime Minister? 
Did you think you were going to win in 1992? No. I thought in the first week of the campaign um, that there was a chance that we could be the biggest single party. But as the time went on, uh, it became very clear to me and to the people around me simply by, if you like, the taste and smell, which was pretty well developed. Obviously, I'd been in politics for since I was 14 years of age, um, uh, uh, that we were just not going to make it. And in the end, of course, that was right. Uh, John Major got a majority of 21, added together his bottom 11 victories uh, had 1,240 votes. So we lost the election by 1,240 votes, 21 seats. That's the consequence of a first-past-the-post system. And I knew the moment that Margaret Thatcher left the scene in November 1990 that the whole possibility of winning had changed. If she had remained as Conservative leader, uh, I'm pretty certain we would have won. Not massively, but uh, we would have formed the government. What did you think of John Major as an opponent? Did you think he was formidable? I mean, now there's this sort of perception of him as all shirt tucked in his pants and, uh, you know, the grey man from, from Spitting Image. But he won the most votes ever cast in a general yes, election. sure. And um, part of the reason was that he was winning against me. Um, because... Um, I was a marmite figure, he was a marmalade figure. And I'm not denigrating John in any way at all. Uh, the, the, I'd been there too long, unavoidably. Because if I felt at any stage that there really was somebody else who could deal with the party, the issues, and lead us to victory, I would have said, you take over. Yeah. Uh, but. There wasn't. We had several really top-class shadow cabinet members, not just people who became prime minister afterwards, <laughs> Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, who were at that stage youngsters that yeah. I had very, very deliberately brought on. But John Smith, for instance, who tragically died a couple of years later. Um, and John was formidable in the House and highly respected, a kind of bank manager figure. but. Um, as he acknowledged to me, he couldn't have run the Labour Party for 10 minutes. <laughs> and in the circumstances, uh, I had to continue to do the job because there really wasn't anybody else who could do that job. Um, if we'd won the election, there were about five people who would have been <laughs> Prime Minister. Yeah. It's a bit easier. But um, John Major was formidable in the sense that he appeared not to be. And he was such a contrast with Thatcher that people could convince themselves they got the change that they wanted, Thatcher through the door, uh, and they could still safely vote Conservative. And John was the epitome in 1992 of safety. And is uh, is a decent, normal guy. That's the second time I used the word normal, but <laughs> usual guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you could go for a pint with him, you could bear living next door to him. Whereas with Mrs. Thatcher, if you were living next door and the kids were playing football in the street and the ball went into her garden, 
they never knock the door to ask for it back. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's probably <laughs> absolutely unfair about Margaret Thatcher. But that's the perception. But that was had. the perception, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. That's the important thing. Um, so uh, all of that was true before yeah. the election. Then, as John, and, uh, John Major and Chris Patton later acknowledged to me, they were pretty desperate in the second week of the election because we were really campaigning yeah. at maximum velocity. It was great. Our campaign was terrific, as it was in 87. But uh, he got so frustrated, he pulled a bullhorn out of the boot of the bus, stood on an orange box, yeah. not a soapbox, and started doing what he'd done when he was a kid on the corner the in London, yeah. uh, talking directly. There could have never been a more dramatic, graphic illustration that he was not Margaret Thatcher. And even though it was completely accidental and unconscious, nobody planned it that way, least of all him, it really struck a chord. Now, I'm not saying that's the reason yeah. he won, but it certainly underscored six red lines. I am not Margaret Thatcher. Yeah, yeah. Well, we should contrast maybe the soapbox with the Sheffield rally. Um, which I know we'll, we'll talk. Yeah. We'll, we'll, so what's interesting, and we've spoken about this before, is at the time people thought it was quite good. John Cole on the BBC yeah. said, this is the most stirring political occasion I've attended since the nomination of JFK in the early 1960s. It was only subsequently, after the election, that people said, oh, that was the moment. Hey. You saying yes. we're all right or well all I, right. I know you're going to tell me you said yeah. well all right. That seemed like hubris, but it was only after the, the election. Yeah. But one of the things that struck me was, do you think, because clearly politics was coming a bit more exciting, certainly on the Labour side, a bit more exciting, a bit more American. That felt like a big American-style rally. But nobody's really tried without it the since. Money. Without, without the, the money. money. <laughs> or maybe the balloons. But we've never really had that sort of big, um, big we don't have big showbiz glitzy rallies no. in politics. Do you think you killed Thank that God. off? Uh, no, 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 no. We'd, we'd, we'd never had anything yeah. remotely like what they do in the United States, thank God, dreadful, uh, and banal, so superficial, ridiculous. Um, no, we'd never had that. Well, we have our conferences where we usually batter each other rather than uh, get <laughs> the after opposition. the enemy. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and um, I suppose that wonderful morning when Tony Blair got elected mm. in 97, uh, you could put that in the frame with uh, ecstatic American uh, uh, rallies yeah, and so yeah. on. But that was a real product of the time, yeah, yeah. entirely authentic, not the invented excitement of American yeah. stuff. So, um, no, we thank God we're still a, a big distance away from that complete razzle-dazzle nonsense. Do you wish you hadn't done the Sheffield rally? No, it was a great rally. And as you faithfully recorded, I'm glad you've <laughs> done your homework. Um, uh, John was one of those uh, who commented favorably on it. When we looked at the results in terms of public perception, it very, very slightly benefited us, okay. but not enough yeah. to really shift the realities. And as you say, it was only in the weeks afterwards that this myth was developed that the hubris of the Sheffield rally was what really put the final nails in our coffin. 
it wasn't, it was, I mean, part of the reason was um, it was supposed to go out on the nine o'clock news uh, because of all the bloody singing and dancing and the <laughs> crowd and the cheering. There were 10,000 people there. And it was a, an enormous occasion. Uh, they played the wrong music I'd vetoed. What? Something, oh, I don't know, some ridiculous thing. Uh, I'd said, no, no. And we all come on from the back of the stage and uh, I make the speech and that's it. Instead of that, by the time I landed in the helicopter, which I had to as the only way I could get there in time. Uh, so that wasn't part of the orchestration. Yeah. That was just incidental. Uh, they decided, the people who organized it, that we were going to pre be presented as the next cabinet. And I, since then, often had to uh, present myself when being asked to speak as, uh, my name is Neil Kinnock. Uh, I used to be the next prime minister. <laughs> and, and it was, because it was such ridiculously overdone. Yeah. But that didn't matter as it happened, because it was reported in a fairly yeah, positive uh, way at the sober time. and favorable way. So it was only weeks afterwards the mythology was invented. So clearly, uh, the Conservatives have tried to cast this as being Rishi Sunak is Joel Major in 92, Keir Starmer is you. But this is the point. Uh, Keir isn't me. Yeah. Is he better than you? Uh, oh, in many respects, yes. yes. But he hasn't been there for nine years. Yeah. That's crucial. Uh, and uh, you can be there too long, whether you're Prime Minister or leader of the Opposition, part of the scenery. Whereas John Major was relatively new. But he, he was he's, he's not Rishi Sunak in so many ways. Uh, for instance, John is probably quite well off now, uh, but he wasn't when he became an MP. Um, and uh, Rishi Sunak is fabulously wealthy, and it does make a difference. Um, and uh, Major is um, a, a guy off the high street, which is a real strength. Whereas Sunak has got a party, uh, John's party was divided, but it, it wasn't in shattered into fragments mm. like the one that Sunak has got now. I mean, he's got a whole bunch of his MPs demanding ca tax cuts and the other bunch demanding uh, more public spending. And there are some who say, let's have more public spending and tax cuts. And uh, they've got their own uh, sympathies and rivalries. Some are campaigning for Johnson. Some are yearning for trust. I mean, he's uh, dealing with an impossible indiscipline in his party, which isn't going to go away. And then there's the basic schism, which is as big as anything ever experienced by the church over membership or lack of membership or distance from the European Union. So um, I, I was going to say the best of luck to him, but that would be really hypocritical. <laughs> what does Keir Starmer, he's clearly ahead in the polls, you know, double the Tories in some of the polls, but there is still this slight feeling, we get it on our monthly focus groups, people yeah. really cross with the government, don't really know what Keir Starmer's all about, feels like he sort of just criticises from the sidelines we hear a lot, rather than having a plan on his own. What does he need to do, from your perspective, you've been there twice, what does he need to do in the next 18 months to seal that deal and not repeat 92? 
be himself and get increasing amounts of understanding and support for the fact that he is mature, that he's perceptive, that he really does feel people's feelings in, right down here. Uh, not just in his brain, which is extremely well developed, he's a very smart guy, but in, the, in his bone marrow. Uh, he's not in any sense superficial. And that's what he's going to continue to do. As for a plan, he's got a plan which is a big core of what needs to be done and what can be done. It's got to be workable as well. It's got to be affordable as well. And the so-called Green New Deal is all those things. And it will benefit every bit of the country with, this sounds exaggerated, but it's not, a new industrial and technological revolution. And because they fastened on to that and will have the means to invest, crucial word, in doing it, I think that in a relatively short time, it's not going to happen in six months or a year, but two or three years, people will start to see sustainable growth returning. And with that, of course, comes opportunity, uh, comes enterprise, comes creativity, and the security, which is the foundation of all uh, enterprise and aspiration, realistic aspiration, when you've got a firm footing. And that's going to be at the center of the planning and development that uh, you'll see Kirstam and the party doing. And it would be folly for him to go into intricate detail nearly two years out from the general election. As the general election gets closer, you will see more of the feeling and shape of the bricks that are going to build the future. Um, I just wanted to ask you about Wales, obviously where you're from Wales, and Labour yep. in government in Wales. Yep. And one of the things we've seen, and he comes up at PMQs all the time, that actually lots of the problems get thrown at Rishi Sunak are being played out in Wales, whether it's the NHS or the economy or the schools or whatever it might be. Is that a problem? I mean, it's obviously not a problem that you, you had when you were in opposition. Does that weaken Keir Starmer's chances? No, because uh, he could absolutely justifiably point out that since 2010 Wales has been shortchanged by about three billion pounds and the latest uh, blow in that respect is that when we were in the European Union Wales benefited significantly uh, from the regional development and social funds and in the budget for 20 to 25 the EU budget was 1.4 billion for Wales. That's turned into less than a billion. In fact, Wales is about uh, 560, 570 million pounds short of what it would be getting if we'd remained in the EU. Now, the government promised solemnly in 2019 in its manifesto and in specific words from the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, that Wales would not get a penny less. I'm quoting him exactly. And of course, 
we're 560 million pounds less, apart from the effect on Wales, which has got high morbidity, industrial dereliction is, in a sense, on the wrong side of the uh, UK market, let alone the European market, and has got a higher proportion of manufacturing in its gross domestic product than any other part of the United Kingdom. So it's been belted yeah. by the losses uh, resulting from our departure from the EU. So I'm not <coughs> making excuses. Yeah. These are all facts of life that have to be confronted with the Welsh Government. And they still managed to achieve quite remarkable strides in social care, in the management of the health service, which they're constantly trying to improve. But devolution without funding is responsibility without power. And that dilemma has got to be resolved. If it was up to you now, would we rejoin the EU? Uh, rejoin? Yeah, if it was entirely up to me, um, I would seek to rejoin the single market and the customs union. But it's a changed union over the last six years and seven months. Yeah. And we've got to deal with the EU as it is now and in the future. And whether we rejoin or not, build a new relationship based on respect and trust. And both of those are diminished by the act of leaving, yes, yeah. but much, much, much more important by the way in which the government has treated and represented the EU over that six years, which is seriously juvenile. I mean, it's, uh, but personal relationships and mutual respect do matter in life generally, in politics generally, and in diplomacy specifically. Yeah. And the government has just discarded that, which is foolish. Even staying outside could be the effects of it economically, politically, socially, could be greatly mitigated by negotiating a new relationship, which wouldn't necessarily involve membership. And it's, you know, that's taken, taken a long time. We've talked a lot about your big jobs, pre-politics, in politics, since. And I know you, you've, you've written movingly before about your, your big job now is looking after Glenys and, yeah. and yeah. her living with dementia. Yeah. How, how's she doing and how are you coping? Well, um, in a sense, um, how's she doing is a question you should never ask somebody who loves somebody with Alzheimer's because there's only one way that goes. Yeah. Um, but I, I understand why you're asking it. Uh, I mean, she's uh, got an intrinsic, remarkable merriment, which uh, survived even this. Uh, but it doesn't get any better. Yeah. Uh, it can't get any better, not until uh, medical science advances a hell of a way. But there are lots of great people working on that. It'll be too late for Glenys, but hopefully it will come in time to either prevent or help or assuage or moderate the effects of this brain damage um, for generations to come. So I'm very happy to help in the efforts to do that. Uh, and meanwhile, I'm, I'm luckier than millions. My daughter and her husband and their kids live around the corner. Yeah. They are marvelously supported. Steve, when he's in London. Uh, Stephen Kennecott's a yeah, Labour MP, yeah. Yeah. Uh, never misses a week. 
Hella, whenever she's in the UK, she's there. Uh, so I'm, th we've got this got the family. terrific yeah. family, and I can afford care, yeah. which a hell of a lot of people can't. Yeah. And so um, we slog on. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from? <laughs>